So we've been talking about Robert Munger's little book, Christ's Heart, My Home. But we've been in a number of rooms. We have been in the living room and in the dining room. We have been in the bedroom. We have been in the nursery. And this morning, we're going to make a little trip over to the hall closet. So in keeping with that, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, his gospel. We're in the 19th chapter. We're going to share the first 10 verses, and then we're going to skip over to a passage in the Old Testament in Proverbs as our text. So here's what Jesus did, and here's what Jesus had to say according to Luke. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then our text is found in the book of Proverbs. It's found in the 28th chapter in the 13th verse, and that goes like this. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Our culture has mastered the art of euphemisms. We're especially good at making the truth, the unpleasant truth, sound even better than it is. So companies today, they no longer fire people far too negative, now they right-size or let people go. People no longer are bold, they are follically challenged or comb-free. It's no longer roadkill, it's now vehicularly compressed maladaptive life forms. A funeral home made a list of the euphemisms that they have their employees use. So don't say corpse, say loved one. Don't say cemetery, say memorial park. We don't dig a grave, we open an internment site. We don't issue a death certificate, we provide a vital information card. Restaurants now offer call-ahead seating. Apparently, the word reservation sounded too bureaucratic. Some years ago, you could buy a used car. Now you buy a pre-owned 
automobile, meaning someone else has gone through all the trouble of breaking it in just for you. You can also now purchase a certified pre-owned automobile in case you suspect that it might not have been pre-owned at all. Some years ago, the White House press secretary, at that time his name was Ron Ziegler, made a statement that turned out to be completely false, a blatant lie. And he was questioned about it the very next day, to which he responded, yes, you are right. That statement is no longer operative, end quote. Ever try that, that explanation at work? Or perhaps at school? Or at home? Or with your spouse? How'd it work? The truth is, today, we distort, we twist, we redefine truth in order to spare ourselves a little bit of unpleasantness. Sadly, we do the very same thing in our spiritual lives, and it has yielded disastrous results. Scripture is very clear and very succinct when it says, we have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Most of us, truth be told, are already well aware of that fact. We know we have messed up. We just don't want anybody else to know about it, so we try very hard to conceal it. Sin, that simple three-lettered but very apparently unpleasant word, is seldom used anymore. People don't talk about it. In fact, we have tried very hard to find other words to describe what it defines, and so we use euphemisms when we talk about sin. Euphemisms like shortcomings, errors, slip-ups, blunders, foibles, missteps, hiccups, or growth areas. Cornelius Plantinga, in his little book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin, writes, quote, Our awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. A man who lost his temper might, might wonder if he should actually go and take communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that that particular sin threatened her very soul. In today's group confessionals, it's harder to tell. Our newer language fudges. We deal with our sin by simply calling it something different. By soft-pedaling or slow-walking it and hoping nobody really notices or by stuffing it into our hard closet and closing the door and locking it. We assume that if we don't acknowledge it, at least publicly, then maybe it's not true, and hopefully we won't have to deal with it if it is. So this morning in our study of My Heart, Christ's Home, Christ walks us right to our hall closet, to the very last room. Closets are for hiding things that we don't want others to see. And Munger notes, 
His hall closet is locked. When Jesus comes and knocks on the door of our heart, when Jesus asks if he can come and take up residence, he fully expects access to every single room, to be a part of every aspect of our life. Jesus says, something that doesn't smell quite right in this house, it's in that closet, smells like something is rotting, smells even like something is dead, has to go. Some years ago, Marilyn and I had a possum that died in between our wall. The smell, as you can well imagine, was horrific. It seemed to last forever. But the truth is, we couldn't cover it up with perfume, but we slowly got used and accustomed to the odor. Munger. Munger says that Jesus' comment just simply made him angry. He says, Jesus, I have given you access to almost every room and every part of this house, but I have just a couple of old habits, just a couple of attitudes, and I need them. Fact is, I want them. Truth is, I'm not going to change them. I am not giving you the key. To which Jesus says, if that's true, then I can't stay in your house. I can't live with that smell. I'll have to leave. The whole closet is usually the hardest closet. That's why Munger saves it to last. That's why we're talking about it at the end of this series. It's usually the last room that we want to give Jesus access to because it's the room that contains all of our best secrets where we've put our indiscretions the things we would hope and prefer God didn't know anything about. We put them in that closet for a reason. We want them to stay hidden. We want them out of sight. We don't want to have to deal with them. Munger watches Jesus as Jesus turns and starts to walk out the door. And Munger slowly relents. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll give you the key, but you'll have to clean it out. I don't have the strength. And probably, to be truthful, not the interest as well. When Jesus came, there was one word that he used over and over and over again. Some of you know that Jesus had what is called a forerunner. He had somebody to come announce his coming. His name was John the Baptist, and John the Baptist began talking about this word when he said in the desert of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When Jesus came, Jesus began to preach, the scripture says. He began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. After John was put in prison, Mark tells us that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And Jesus was saying, the time has come. 
The kingdom of God is near. Therefore, repent and believe, accept, receive the good news. Catch the word? The word is repent. The message dominated Jesus' life and ministry. Repent. Repent means clean out your closet. When Jesus returned to his father and sent his spirit in his place to be with us forever, there was a message the church is supposed to proclaim as well. Peter talks about it on Pentecost, the very birth date of the church. And he says, when people heard this, that is Peter's message, they were cut to the heart. That is, they were willing to turn over their key. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Simply clean out your closet. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the focus of Jesus coming into our world is the same focus Jesus now has standing in front of our whole closet. The door needs to be unlocked. Our closet needs to be cleaned. And repentance is the path Repentance is the path to deepening our relationship with the Father. Repentance is the prerequisite to life in God's kingdom. Repentance is necessary in order for Jesus not only to take up residence in our heart, but to stay and live with us. And that's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to just pay a visit. Just doesn't want to come for a cup of coffee and stay a little while wants to move in so the question is he stands in front of our hall closet is how do we turn it over to Jesus that is how do we go about acknowledging and confessing and then avoiding sin and transforming our relationship with Jesus Christ so he keeps on staying Well, repenting means not ignoring. It means not excusing. It means not rationalizing. It means not blaming somebody else for our sin. You see, sin naturally encourages us to do all of those kinds of things. Watch the news some night. Everybody's doing it. It's never anybody's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. No one takes responsibility for the mess that we're in anymore. We always blame someone else. We always blame something else for our improprieties. You know, I was having a bad day. You misunderstood. Sin encourages hiding. It's what it does. Maybe you remember way back at the beginning, Adam ate some forbidden fruit and God asked him, Adam, why are you hiding? Did you eat from the tree that I specifically told you not to eat from? And Adam, for us, reflects the importance of taking personal responsibility for his actions. He sums up all of his courage that he can muster, and he says, it was that woman that you gave me. 
She's responsible for this. This wasn't my idea. I didn't ask for her. He never gets around to saying, I did it. I'm responsible, even though he did. Adam has the audacity to blame God. That's what sin does. Sin and hiding are two sides, if you will, of the very same coin. They go together. But the results are disastrous. Listen to the psalmist. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy on me. And then, then I acknowledged my sin. Then I opened my closet. Then I did not cover or hide up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sounds like our text this morning. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Confession, repentance, mercy, and grace always go together with God. Repenting means taking ownership of the things that we have pushed into our closet. John Ortberg says, after he preached a message about sin on one occasion, Harry came up to him. Harry said, John, I don't like these kinds of messages. All this talk about sin, it just makes me feel bad. I don't consider myself to be a sinner. And John said, Harry, let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever, let me put that a different way. Have you always been faithful to your wife, Harry? Well, you know, John, I'm in sales. John understood. When you fill out your expense account, have you ever added something that wasn't strictly business? Well, you know, John, everybody does that. When you're selling, have you ever exaggerated your product's value? Have you ever promised an unrealistic shipping date just to satisfy and get the order? Of course. That's just common in the industry, Harry said. John said, Harry, you just told me you're an adulterer, you're a cheater, and you're a liar. So Harry, repeat after me. I'm an adulterer, I'm a cheater, and I'm a liar. <laughs> now that makes sin really sound bad. We're adulterers, we're cheaters, we're liars, we're thieves, we're gossipers, we're slanderers. We are prideful, we are unloving, we are self-centered. We are so easily ticked off and angered. We get vindictive and we love to retaliate. Translated, our closets stink. No wonder we want to keep them locked. No wonder that we want the stuff in there to, to stay hidden. And sadly, we've grown so used to the smell that it doesn't bother us. But it does bother Jesus. 
We need a savior. And until the truth of our sinfulness is brought to light in our life, until we admit our closet stinks, you and I cannot experience God's forgiveness. We cannot receive his healing grace. Until we realize we need a savior, we won't spend any time or effort looking for one. Marilyn does the laundry in our house. She does that for a very good reason. She knows that I like to maximize efficiency, and so I would just wait for a huge pile of laundry, and I would squeeze it all into the machine with a plunger until it couldn't take no more. I'd add a little soap, and I'd close the lid, and you already know the result. Everything would come out looking the same. Dingy. You see, to get clothes clean, they need to be washed in smaller piles. They need to be sorted We live in a world where people take their dirty laundry more seriously than they do their stained souls. People take more time and put in more energy to get their clothes clean and neat and pressed than they will to get their hearts and their lives purified. We prefer to throw all of our laundry into one great big pile and say, God, please forgive all of my sins. It's even easier when we do it corporately all together. Father, please forgive all our, um, mostly their sins, Father. It's a lot less embarrassing. It's less depressing. It's less painful. It's also less helpful because it allows us to minimize the seriousness that goes along with sin. Repentance by its very nature means being painfully honest and humbly specific with God and with others. God, I said I was late for that meeting because traffic was bad. Truth is, Lord, I didn't give myself enough time. I told a lie. I'm a liar. God, please forgive me. God, the reason I gossiped is is because I wanted people to think better of me than they do of others. I want to project this image of myself, this very positive image, so that people don't realize my reality, my heart. Father, please forgive me. Father, somebody did something that I didn't really like, and so... I sent them a nasty anonymous text message. Father, I wasn't as gracious with them as you have been with me. Father, please forgive me. God, the reason I complain so much is because I know my way and my perspective is so much superior and better than theirs. And Father, I know that that's pride. And I need to be more encouraging and more supportive. So, Father, please forgive me. You see, being specific, dealing with our sin in smaller piles allows us to be more real and acknowledge and confess and address our sins and hopefully begin to change. The psalmist invites us to ask God to shine a light on our hearts so that It goes even into the corners and into the closets of our lives. 
Now, please understand, repentance from God's perspective is not a bookkeeping detail. It doesn't require one, I'm sorry for every single sin that we have committed. Sin is a specific act, but it is not only a specific act. It is a condition. It is a brokenness in our heart and in our relationship. It's a mess that is eventually going to leak out, spill out, and it smells. We can't stop it. We can't even hardly slow it down. We need to acknowledge that our life's issues are a mess and that God wants to clean it up. And all we need to do is ask because the truth is we don't have the ability or the capability of cleaning it up on our own. But repentance is the first step in healing the relationship. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and me. The relationship between the person or persons I have offended, and me. The relationship between the neighbor that I have committed to love, and me. Repentance is the key to the closet that allows Jesus to open it up and to clean it out. So you might know the story of Zacchaeus, the one we read a few moments ago. It's the classic example of a smelly closet. You see, Zacchaeus was considered immoral by his fellow Jews. He was a lost cause. He was a loser. There were three occupations that were considered to be totally and absolutely immoral. First was that of a gamble, gambler, one who wasted the resources that God had entrusted to them. The second was a user, that is an extortionist, one who would charge exorbitant rates for somebody when they borrowed money. And the third was a tax collector. And of the three, the tax collector was considered to be the worst. A tax collector in their mind had sold out their soul to the Romans. And they were already engaged in assisting the Romans in oppressing their own fellow Jews. And Zacchaeus, don't, don't miss this, was a chief, was a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus, the scripture says, wanted to see Jesus, but he was small in stature. At the same time, he did not want to be seen. He wanted to remain hidden. His immorality and his hiddenness go together. And so he climbed up and he hid in a tree. And then Luke tells us when Jesus reached the spot, that is when Jesus got under the tree in which Zacchaeus was hiding, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, <laughs> come down. Expose yourself. Let people see you. Do it now. Because I have to stand at, stay at your house. I got to come into your heart. I'm going to check your closet. And Zacchaeus came down. And welcomed him gladly. Jesus calls Zacchaeus out of his hiding place. 
When people realized what Jesus was doing, the scripture says they began to mutter, he is going to be the guest of a sinner. Because they all know Zacchaeus owns the house on the block that stinks the most. They wish he didn't even live there. Wish he would get out. That's not news to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus knew he was morally ragged. The key to coming out of hiding is to admit when we're ragged too. That we're all ragged. That we need to get it out in the open so Jesus can come in and clean it. When Jesus called Zacchaeus out of hiding, when Jesus calls for the key to our closet, when he says he's going to Zacchaeus' house, things begin to happen and to change. Zacchaeus hears for the, perhaps the very first time, the good news of God's grace of forgiveness, and he gives his heart to Jesus. Jesus cleans his closet. His life changes. Listen, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Repentance leads to a clean heart. Repentance invites Jesus to come in and to transform our life. Repentance gives us God's assurance that you and I will spend eternity with Jesus. So Munger writes, once I passed him the key, once I repented, Jesus took the key, he opened the door, he entered it, and he took out the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, and he threw it all away. Last week, we talked about the foundation of our faith. We talked about the joy that we receive simply because Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed his life for us. And while he was on the cross, he announced, it is finished. And then we said he died and he was placed in the grave for us. And God raised him up from the dead. And then Jesus told us again, it's finished. Sin has been paid for. Redemption has been won. Salvation is complete. Atonement has been made. Finished. The Apostle Paul says, God forgave us all of our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. So if we believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you give him the key to your closet, he'll come in and he'll clean it. He'll forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future. It is not a forgiveness that we earn. It is not a forgiveness we deserve. It is not a forgiveness you and I can contribute to in any way. It is also not a forgiveness that awaits us someday far into the future. It is a forgiveness that God in Christ promises is already now here for us. Complete, finished, accomplished. It is by his mercy Remember the text for today. It is by his grace. Christ's resurrection promises us new life in Christ. But you and I can't experience that new life in Christ until the matter of sin 
Our stinking closet has been settled till it's been cleaned. Jesus knows that. And he makes an offer to do it all for us. That's why he wants all access. He offers to come, to clean it, to paint it, to fix it up all in a moment's time. Immediately, you and I will have a fresh, fragrant breeze blowing through the whole house. We don't have to do anything. Just give him the key. We couldn't even if we wanted to. So is it true? Is it really true that sin fully, finally, and forever is forgiven? Yes, it is. James Bryan Smith says he had a really hard time accepting that. He had been taught that every single sin that he had committed required a corresponding confession. And so on one occasion, he asked his mentor, Dallas Willard, if that was true, if full, final, and forever forgiveness was a thing. And Willard said, yes. And then after a brief pause, Willard added, it is a wonderful thing to know that God no longer deals with us on the basis of our sin. And Smith said, what? And Dallas repeated, if we are in Christ, God no longer deals with us on the basis of our sin. And Smith looked at him and said, do you really believe that? And Willard said, yes, I do. And so did Luther. And so did Calvin. And so did Wesley. In fact, the entire Reformation was built around the themes of faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. The fact that our entire salvation is the work of God. And you and I get to make no contribution to it at all, except to hand over the key. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But the important question this morning is, do you believe it's true? Do you believe your sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven because of Jesus' death and his resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus is standing at the, at the door of your hall closet and wants to come in so he can clean it and repaint it and refresh it so that that wonderful breeze can impact your entire house and life? He doesn't want to come in to punish you. To judge you, to make it clean, so you can experience his presence and his forgiveness and his healing and his joy. Repentance always leads to God's mercy and to grace. And Jesus loves it when somebody hands him the key to their hall closet. Jesus is the greatest forgiver, transformer, and grace dispenser that our world has ever known or ever will know. He is never shocked. He has never turned anyone away who has come to him genuinely repentant. He could never love you more than he does right at this moment, and he will not love you and I owe less 
when he figures out and sees what's behind your closet door. Grace, you see, is God's specialty. And that's why he sent his own son, his one and only son, to a cross. Repentance is never complete until you and I come to that cross and hear and receive his saving sacrifice is for us. In his love and grace, God has called to himself a community where people can be transparent and honest, where people can confess and be forgiven, where people can be real and still belong, a community where people are so aware of their own brokenness and so overwhelmed by God's grace that they're willing to open their closet door and let him in. And we're a church community is well aware that not only did their closet stink, but others do as well. And they're opening, they're open to walking alongside those people. And the scripture calls that community the church. I came across this poem not too long ago. Unfortunately, I don't know the author, but it goes like this. I was shocked. I was confused and bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, by the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven that made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood this kid from the seventh grade who had swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. What's the deal? I'd like to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? God, God must have made a mistake. And, and why? Why is everyone so quiet and somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they would see you. Deep truth of this poem is that we all have an odor that comes out of our hall closet. The fact is, I know more about my hall closet than anyone else knows about it except God. And the most shocking person that I know that will ultimately end up in heaven is me. Euphemisms or no euphemisms. We all need to deal with our hall closets. I'm going to invite us to do that, you to do that for a few moments right now. Let's talk to Jesus. Jesus, my hall closet is a mess. And it scares me sometimes because I can't fix it. I've tried. Now I can no longer stand the stench, Jesus. Would you help me? Would you come into my closet? Would you clean my house? 
Would you clean my heart? Maybe you've never asked God to forgive you for anything. This morning's a good time to start. Or maybe you talk to him regularly. But there's still some junk tucked in your hall closet that you haven't dealt with. It's a good time to open that door once again. Be specific. Name what's in there to be named. Even if you do it quietly, do it consciously. Pride, anger, self-centeredness, bitterness, materialism, lust, envy, self-righteousness, greed. Just give them the key. Invite him in. He'll do the cleaning. Talk to him. Father, in these few minutes, I've laid my sin before you. I've tried to name it for what it is. It's true, I've betrayed myself, offended others, and dishonored you. And now I ask you to forgive me for Jesus' sake. To cleanse me. To make my closet and my heart clean. And now I thank you. I'm overwhelmed by the grace that you have purchased at the price of your son on the cross. And I'm so grateful for the good news of your presence, of your love for me. I long for my life to be a life of repentance and joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus loves us. And Jesus loves it when people humble themselves and repent. And the psalmist says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is very slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. No, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jesus just loves to clean our closets. It makes his father glad. It makes our hearts pure. So Jesus can move in, take up residence, and stay. <laughs>